welcome back to another episode of our in-depth Lord of the Rings character guide podcast, Not Another Fucking Elf, hosted by Paul Ridd. Hello. And me, Catherine Bray. As ever, let's quickly recap. What is this podcast and why? So, this podcast came about as a result of our intense compulsion to talk about the Lord of the Rings (laughs) as Lord of the Rings fans and sort of get away from our day jobs for a bit. And we were thinking about the different ways you could approach it, chapter by chapter, adaptation by adaptation. Um, And what felt interesting for us was the idea of a character by character approach. Yeah, so in each episode, we take a different character from Lord of the Rings and we have a little chat about what that character is all about, what their deal is, what their significance is in the wider narrative, who played them in different adaptations and how well, all that kind of good stuff. And it's called Not Another Fucking Elf as a little tip of the hat to a very sassy man named Hugo Dyson, who was mates with Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and other guys like that at university. And apparently he said this, or some variation of this, during a session when they were all reading out bits of their writing. Um, I was reading the Humphrey Carpenter collated letters of Tolkien the other day. As you do. As I do. And there was one in there that I quite liked from 1952. Do you want to read this bit? This is this is Tolkien talking kind of behind Hugo Dyson's back. Yes, so this is Tolkien. We had a ham feast with C.S. Lewis on Thursday, an American ham from Dr. Feeraw of Johns Hopkins University. And it was like a glimpse of old times, quiet and rational, since Hugo was not asked. Poor old Hugo. Yeah, really horrible about Hugo. What a terrible thing to say. He wasn't there. I'd love nice to time. Like, go to a ham feast with Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Yeah, exactly. It's very harsh. Anyway, which character are we talking about today? So today we're going to have a chat all about Saruman, the bad boy of the wizard world. And before we do that, just to note that we are assuming that there are no such things as spoilers for you. Yes, we're forging ahead under the blissful assumption that you know what happens to Saruman and that's not going to be a surprise for any of you. No. So, uh, shall we summon the forces of Isengard? Yes, let's record the podcast. So... Who is Saruman? Saruman is a wizard. He is initially believed to be one of the good guys. So when Gandalf realises that the ring which has come into the possession of the hobbit Frodo Baggins is the one ring that Sauron needs to rule over absolutely everything and everybody, he feels like going to Saruman will be a great shout and they can have a chat about what to do. But like rewinding a bit, the reason Gandalf thinks that is because they've both been part of an organisation called the White Council for absolutely ages, um, since like I think the middle of the Third Age. And the purpose of the White Council was to keep an eye on Sauron and stop him from taking over. Um, and that actually comes up in The Hobbit when they basically evict the necromancer, aka Sauron, from Mirkwood. Yeah, so it's not a completely dumb idea that Saruman is going to help um, sort out what's going on with the ring at that point in the story. Unfortunately, though, he's in cahoots with Sauron. Or sort of in cahoots with Sauron, because it's not like he legitimately worships Sauron. He just doesn't think that anyone can beat Sauron. So Saruman is kind of tactically pretending to be in an alliance with Sauron, while actually he's hoping to get his hands on the ring himself. Yeah, yeah. So he's seeing himself as a sort of competitor power more than a true ally of Sauron. And he's gone full Machiavelli. The end justifies the means. The means are armies of orcs. And the ends are Saruman in charge of everything. And that's a total betrayal of what a wizard should be. Wizards are meant to be good guys and and they're supposed to help out. Yeah, so 
Uh, Saruman tries to trap Gandalf, but Gandalf escapes. Uh, Saruman's next ploy is possibly weather-related. I don't think we really get a firm line in the book on whether the storm in the mountains that nearly wipes out the Fellowship is Saruman's doing or not, but it's heavily implied. And then in Peter Jackson's film, they remove that ambiguity. He absolutely, Saruman sends the storm that results in the Fellowship having to go through Moria under the mountains and leads to Gandalf's death. Yeah, so once the Fellowship is um, uh, Gandalf free, um, <laughs> it's even easier for Saruman to send his specially bred massive orcs, the Urukai, after the Fellowship, which works up to a point in that they capture a couple of the hobbits, but they don't manage to bring the hobbits to Isengard. But uh, yeah, the creatures that do end up taking. You can't say it. <laughs> don't say it. <laughs> creatures that do end up taking the hobbits to Isengard. <laughs> to Isengard are the Ents, the great shepherds of the forest. Um, like That's a bit of a fuck up for Saruman because he, he just hasn't made any kind of plan for the Ents. I'm not sure why really. And while his armies are off trying and failing to bring down Rohan, the Ents smash Isengard to little pieces. Yeah, it's really just generally a very bad time for Saruman. Um, but again, he's fairly mercifully treated and he's allowed to go free. Which turns out to have been a poor shout, because when the hobbits get back home at the very end of all of their adventures, what do they find? But Saruman and his faithful servant Wormtongue, happily ensconced in Bag End, ruling over the Shire. Um, that probably sounds like a joke if you haven't read the book, but it is... I promise you, what I was actually telling our mutual friend Charlie the other day, that's how it ends. Like, they yeah. go to Bag End and Saruman is in Bag End and yeah, he just yeah. didn't believe me. Yeah, but it's sort of weird because it usually gets missed out of all the adaptations, I guess, because there's so much to get through at the end of the story that to have this little coda doesn't um, necessarily make sense for slickness. Yes, yeah. But that's what happens. So we'll come to talk about Saruman as boss of the Shire in a moment. Um, but first, I think we should get more into what Saruman actually is. It's very, very important to Tolkien that we understand that he's not like a magician, right? <laughs> yeah, he was very against the idea of people understanding wizards as magicians, I suppose, because it does conjure completely the wrong yeah. um, visual image of a man in a top hat with like... Yeah, with rabbits in a hat. Exactly. And yeah, that's... Well, I mean, it kind of is the route that they went down for Radagast in The Hobbits. I oh, mean, God. Less we talk about the better, I think. Never talk about the <laughs> Hobbit films on this podcast. We we don't like them. Um, but yeah, what are wizards? We've got, I think, um, another little extract from Tolkien's letters to read to you, in which he talks a bit more about the concept of a wizard in Middle-earth. Um, Paulie, do you want to have sure a read thing. of that? There are no precise opposites to the wizards. A translation, perhaps not suitable but throughout distinguished from other magician terms of Q-Elvish Istari. So Q-Elvish being how Tolkien denotes Quenya or High Elvish in his letters? Their origin was not known to any, but a few, such as Alrond and Galadriel, in the Third Age. They are said to have first appeared about the year 1000 of the Third Age, when the shadow of Sauron began first to grow again to new shape. They always appeared old, but grew older with their labours, slowly, and disappeared with the end of the rings. They were thought to be emissaries, in the terms of this tale from the far west beyond the sea, and their proper function, maintained by Gandalf and perverted by Saruman, was to encourage and bring out the native powers of the enemies of Sauron. I'm intrigued by this idea that they always appeared old but grew older with their labours. Like, I wonder how young did they ever look? Like, did Gandalf yeah. and Saruman ever look, you know, 40? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a difficult thing to imagine. I suppose, yeah, you don't 
yeah, you just think of them just as wizened old men. And I don't know if that has also to do with a popular conception of what a, a wizard means or what a... I don't know, like, it's it's hard to imagine young wizards. Really. <laughs> or clean-shaven yeah. wizards. Yeah. It feels like the beard is pretty integral yeah. as well. Vital. I was reading a bit more as well about the differences between Saruman and Gandalf, and something I don't think I'd ever picked up on before was their corresponding valor. So Saruman comes from um, Aule, who was a smith, um, and Gandalf kind of reports in, if you like, to Manwe and Varda. And that sort of says something really interesting about Saruman, because the other guy reporting into Aule, the, the smith, is Sauron. So he's kind of like, he's got a little bro there in the mythology. Like they, they're both um, related to this idea of craftsmanship and making things and power. Mm. And I think that's something that's always theme in Tolkien is the idea of power corrupting. Mm -hmm. What is the what is, what is the unperverted form of that kind of power? Is there a version of that um, pre-corruption Saruman that how does that manifest? What would that mean? Yeah I think that's really interesting it's that idea of studying the arts of the enemy in order to defeat them and there's the version of Saruman that you can imagine that studies Sauron's ploys and Sauron's craftsmanship and the art of ring making and doesn't go down that dark path of wanting to become one of those powers himself but uses that knowledge to help in the efforts to defeat Sauron. Obviously that's not the version of Saruman that we get but then later when Gandalf becomes Gandalf the White he says I am Saruman or rather Saruman as he was meant to be and that's when we see this more active version of Gandalf who actually gets into the fray and like leads an army to Helm's Deep, which isn't something that we've seen Gandalf do before either, because I think Gandalf's weakness, such as it is, is that he's always been kind of avoiding power. Like he's he's been he's been hanging out with the hobbits, mm. he's been this wanderer, he's always been very helpful and kind to men, elves, dwarves and hobbits. But Gandalf shying away from power is it's almost like a different form of flaw, yeah. but one that he he gets redeemed from by dying and then returning to almost take Saruman's place uh, as Saruman should have been. Yeah. Meanwhile, Saruman, I suppose, there's the corruption of, of, of allying himself with Sauron, but there's also the deep corruption of turning um, the natural world into something which is... Um, uh, an industrial wasteland to be exploited for, for raw, um, violent power. There's a sort of big theme of anti-industrialization, right, running through this, and there's the idea of, like, a form of power which is um, based in some sort of moral goodness, or like a, I don't know, um, more kind of old-fashioned notions of inherited responsibility versus the idea of an industrialised, me mechanised army, right? Th those are the things that are set, at, set as parallels to one another in the story. Tolkien always sees a tension between what he calls embalmers and reformers and that's quite a that's a dichotomy that's quite close to what we might understand as almost um, conservatism versus revolution mm -hmm. and the idea of embalming is is almost the sin of the elves that they want to just preserve things as they are forever and it's a, almost a form of conservatism and then the sin of the the reformers is that it tends to come with a kind of violent power mm -hmm. um in in Tolkien's view he talks a little bit about this actually let's find let's find the letter mm -hmm. so Tolkien says 
I'm quoting now, I am not a reformer nor an embalmer. I am not a reformer by exercise of power since it seems doomed to Saramanism, but embalming has its own punishments. So kind of neither path is is optimal in, in Tolkien's view. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the way that Saruman ends up creating orcs and so forth, like that is just a wizard gone completely wrong and Treebeard says it, a wizard should know better. Yeah. Obviously, in that we talk often in this podcast about the genesis and evolution of the story um, as it came together for, for Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings itself being itself this sort of um, ev evolving text um, and becoming something quite different from maybe how it was originally intended. Where does Saruman sit in all of this and the creation of Saruman? He is quite a late stage invention, which I was quite surprised to learn about. Um, he feels like Gandalf, like he's part of the much older lore that mm. um, Tolkien had been working on for a really long time, but apparently that's not the case. He wrote to W.H. Alden talking about how, obviously, if you want to write a sequel to The Hobbit, the ring would acquire a capital letter and a Dark Lord would immediately appear. So he talks kind of quite extensively about the things that sort of had to be in mm. The Lord of the Rings and were immediate inventions and that, that kind of idea of the essential quest being something that he had quite clearly in his mind. Um, we've talked in our Tom Bombadil episode about how Tom Bombadil was an invention from way, way, way back. But then I think it's really interesting to think about the stuff that that was much more of a surprise almost to Tolkien as he wrote. So maybe we'll read a little bit from that, that passage in the letter to WH Alden. Yeah. So this is Tolkien talking about the things that were a surprise to him as he wrote. Tom Bombadil I knew already, but I had never been to Bree. Strider sitting in the corner at the inn was a shock, and I had no more idea who he was than had Frodo. The Mines of Moria had been a mere name, and of Lothlorien no word had reached my mortal ears till I came there. Far away I knew there were the Horse Lords on the confines of an ancient kingdom of men, but Fangorn Forest was an unforeseen adventure. I had never heard of the House of Aeol, nor of the Stewards of Gondor. Most disquieting of all, Saruman had never been revealed to me, and I was as mystified as Frodo at Gandalf's failure to appear on September the 22nd. It's very strange to see um, a writer so seemingly uh, passive and almost like a receiver of new information as he writes, rather than as someone who has, you know, an inherent idea of everything that they're going to do from day one. Like this yeah. idea of being a vessel is lovely, isn't it? I absolutely love the idea of him as mystified as Frodo. Yeah, who's Strider? <laughs> Gandalf's <laughs> failure to appear on September 22nd. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's another example of this problem he sometimes has with uh, Gandalf being so powerful and there for the Fellowship to fix everything and yeah. he has to get rid of him in the minds of Moria for a bit so that the yeah, Fellowship yeah. can deal with things on their own and he has to get rid of him at the point at which Frodo needs to journey to Rivendell. But the fact that he didn't know how he was going to do that and had to invent this whole wizard. Yeah. And it makes sense that he invented a wizard because what can, like that problem of how powerful Gandalf is, you need somebody equally powerful. So I think inventing a kind of dark side Gandalf was a great way to go with that storytelling challenge. Yeah, of course, and finding another interesting parallel. It's strange, I sort of imagine when you're composing something so monstrously large and so complicated, the idea of like a sudden appearance doesn't really figure in my mind at all. I guess I see huge diagrammatics on a wall or something, you know, like, <laughs> how does this come together? Like, how do I, how will everything um, relate to everything else? But yeah. Yeah, because it is, it is 
slightly wild to think about backstitching Saruman into the narrative. He doesn't appear in all that much of the book, so in a way it's like, would you cut him when you're trying to boil down this narrative to its bare essentials? Is he like Tom Bombadil? Would you take him out in order to do an adaptation? And the answer is no, because although he doesn't get very much page time, he is integral to so much of the rest of it narratively once he's in there. Mm. Uh, once once Tolkien comes up with Saruman, it's a great invention because it stops them going through the gap of Rowan, it creates a reason for the Uruk High to kidnap Merry and Pippin, he's the motivation for the confrontation at Helm's Deep, mm. and it defers the confrontation with Sauron's forces, it gives you this beta villain that yeah. you've got to tackle before you get to the big boss. Yeah, yeah. It complicates the, I don't know, the villain backstory, right, doesn't it? It makes it more more than just simply like there's one force of evil that everyone is united against. To have um, a huge, um, a hugely ambiguous character in the middle of this story that's sort of quite straightforward in many respects in terms of its dynamic of good and evil. Yeah, and it, it proves what Gandalf and Elrond uh, saying when they're like, we cannot go absolutely anywhere near the ring, yeah. we cannot be the ones who take the ring to Mordor because we would be corrupted by it. It's a very concrete example of that. Saruman has been corrupted by his desire to have that power and to own the ring, even though he's never been, even been anywhere near it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a good demonstration of one of the founding pieces of the mythology. Okay, should we talk a little bit about some of the representations of Saruman in all the different uh, adaptations of Lord of the Rings? Absolutely love to, yep. As usual, we should start with the much-missed, much-maligned uh, uh, BBC radio adaptation from 1955 that doesn't exist in any form at all except in uh, Tolkien's sassy notes about how crap it was, right? So. <laughs> yeah, the ghost adaptation, 1955, BBC, but back when the BBC was, I don't know, trying to save money by wiping tapes. It was yeah. before the era of... Certainly the BBC at this time were not to be accused of the sin of embalming. No. <laughs> so Sarah Mann in that adaptation was played by an actor called Robin de la Condamine, an English actor who used the stage name Robert Farquharson. Yeah, I was reading about him. I think he was probably a pretty fun Sarah Mann. Uh, one of the pre-war bright young things described him as our last great actor, <laughs> and remembered his emphatic stammer and his dandyish ways, so I think he might have been quite, me. quite a camp Saruman. <laughs> yeah, it's noted for playing villains um, on stage in 1905. He played Herod in the English premiere, premiere of Oscar Wilde's Salome. He played Yakimo in Shakespeare's Cymbeline, a play I don't know at all. Um, He's kind of a, Yakimo is kind of a Yago figure, but like a slightly Poundland Yago. Okay. <laughs> He's not as good. <laughs> I do like the Cymbeline's good though. It's it's yeah. one of those mixed genre Shakespeare plays. So it's it's it is basically a tragedy, but there's also a lot of like romance and comedy in there too. Right. Um, it's late late period. Okay, Duke Ferdinand in John Webster's The Duchess of Malfi. Yeah, um, he's he's a wrong, and I think he was like. Did he get horribly murdered at the end? I mean, all of them do in yeah. Webster. I think his thing was digging up graves or something. I cool. can't remember why, cool. but probably just to be nasty. Just a ledge. Just a nasty Duchess of Malfi wrong. <laughs> and he actually played Denethor as well as Saruman in this uh, 1955 adaptation. Um... Oh, great. Yeah, there's this great quote as well. Um, I mean, again, this makes me think that he was an incredibly sassy man, but apparently after doing this 19... 
55 BBC radio version on the third programme, which is what they used to call Radio 3. Nice. Um, he said, I have been doing a recording for the third programme, but it has all come to an end now. The man who used to listen has bought a television set. Oh, no. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> Just, yeah. So he sounds like a real character. He I does. really regret that we don't get to hear his Saruman <laughs> and Denifor. I'd love to meet him. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds like a real uh, full of zingers yeah. kind of guy. So next there's the Bakshi film from 1978. He's played by an actor called Fraser Carr, voiced by Fraser Carr. He's a Scottish actor, not wildly successful in film or TV. Um, he's got lots of characters on his resume called things like The Landlord or The Radio Reporter or The new Newscaster. Uh, but apparently on radio he made at least 600 programmes for the BBC's drama rep company um, and he apparently played a powerboat tycoon on a few episodes of Howard's Way. <laughs> powerboat tycoon Saruman, I like it. Peak. Yeah, so let's have a listen to Fra Fraser Carr's work in the 1978 Ralph Bakshi animated Lord of the Rings. Where is the ring, Gandalf? Why do the Black Riders search for it in the Shire? Have you hidden it there? Would you rather see the Dark Lord have it? Osaruman of many colours! Neither of you will have it. There is a third choice. It is to remain here until you tell me where the ring may be found. Saruman, if you do this, if you delay me here, Sauron will surely get it then. Then he will know his good servants. <laughs> and his enemies. <laughs> so I'm quite into Fraser Carr's yeah. interpretation. Yeah, big, rich... Scary voice, it's lovely. Massive slice of ham. Yeah, huge slice of ham to go with the sort of Santa Claus aesthetic of the of the drawing. <laughs> so they've animated Saruman in the Bakshi version as wearing red robes. Not 100% sure why does, as you say, give a kind of Santa aesthetic yeah. to the piece. I love what they do though when he does his Saruman of many colours business and starts flinging lights at Gandalf. That yeah. stuff's all quite quite metal. Yeah, it's quite psychedelic, isn't it? It's lovely. Very um, Pink Floyd video sort of vibes. Mm. Probably also worth mentioning the Saruman slash Aruman controversy from the Bakshi, which... Talk to me. I understand why it came up as an issue. Apparently they were like Saruman, Sauron, those are quite similar. Mm. They're both bad dudes in Middle Earth, is that not going to get really confusing for people? I mean, I don't like, I don't think it actually is confusing, but no. I can see why that kind of debate might come up in a writer's room. Mm. What is confusing to me is that the solution was proposed to call him Arrow Man instead, right. and that they did that sometimes, right. but not always. So in... when he's shouting Saruman, Arrow Man, yeah. I've got a, a, a clip of it. Let's, we'll, let's have a listen to, to that, but where you can hear this ridiculous decision yeah. play out. Um, it's Gandalf and, and Aragorn having a little chat about Saruman slash Araman. That would take the ring too close to Isengard and Aruman. We dare not risk it. Yet you would risk the mines of Moria. 
baffling, oh. <laughs> given that you've just heard that at other times in the Bakshi we're talking about Saruman. So I've no idea how that slipped through the net, whether they just that didn't have any takes of, for example, Aragorn there saying Saruman, mm. um, and why you wouldn't... It's not a very expensive fix. Uh, even if you can't get the actor no. back, surely you just get someone to do an impression of that actor saying Saruman and drop that in there. Yeah. Wild. And there's no attempt to explain that at all. Not even like, oh, he's called Araman by such and such character or something. It's like <laughs> yeah. a folkloric thing or That's something. That's the other fix you could do. Because yeah, you've got yeah. all this, like, I, you know, I am Olorin in the north. Yeah, yeah. In the west, they call me Gandalf. Like, yeah. you could do that with Saruman if you wanted to. I mean, he's called Kurunir by the elves. Shaku by the, by the orcs. Yeah. I guess you could write in... Saruman, Aruman. who also goes by Aruman, but they don't do it at all. He's just like inexplicably no. referred to as Saruman slash Aruman. Nice. So yeah, a bit of fun. Suspect that's the sort of thing that would have really boiled Tolkien's piss if yes. you heard it. I can't even begin to imagine how angry he would have been. <laughs> so if we go chronologically and talk about the next adaptation, we have to touch on, as usual, the 1979 Mind's Eye adaptation, which... Um... <laughs> justly maligned, is that a fair I review? I think justly, yes. Justly maligned. But I don't know whether it's just, like, maybe really unfair of me to be slightly against this adaptation just because it's got so many American voices in it and that feels wrong. That's fair enough, absolutely fair enough. Alienating um... anyone from America <laughs> listening to this. Greetings to our US listeners. But, yes, uh... <laughs> hi there. You really did a bad job of Mind's Eye 1979. <laughs> He's a villain and murderer! Kill him! Kill him, kill him! If you think there are enough of you, my brave hobbits, do not think I lost all my power when I lost my goods. And if my blood stains the Shire, it shall wither and never again be healed. What? So that Saruman in the mind's eye version of The Lord of the Rings. He just... yeah. Is it is it a problem? I mean, is it the fact that it is such an American cast and it's they all have such stereotypically American accents delivering this, so it all just sounds... Maybe it's just from a British perspective, like, it just all sounds like Sesame Street because... <laughs> maybe we're just being sniffy Brits. Being sniffy and Brits, maybe. That's maybe actually brilliant. genius. Uh, we have got a, also a bit that I wanted to play, even though it doesn't in actually include any of... Saruman himself, but it's just after he's carved it, yeah. and all of the hobbits are reacting to his death. And I think it's it's classic mind's eye adaptation. So Lovely. let's have a little listen to that. Look what's happening to Saruman! A mist like smoke oh, from a fire. It's going up from his body. Oh. It's dissolving. Oh. It's dissolved into oh. nothing. Nothing. It's gone. Look at oh. the body. It's uh. shriveling. Oh, oh, it's hideous. See, it's a skull. Oh. 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 Cover it, Sam, and let's oh. go. Oh, yes, master. And that's the end of that. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> that is certainly the end of that. I mean, see, it's a skull. Like, Oh, <laughs> I think lots of very good descriptive acting going on from radio actors, I'd say. And they've taken the words from Tolkien, mm. like he does say that the Saruman's body, like, looks like a skull, kind of covered with mm. 
horrible grey skin after he dies. I think it's just, it's hearing people read it out as if they're audio describing something, yeah. which obviously they are. That's yeah. what radio adaptation tends to do during dramatic scenes, and it's probably one of the biggest flaws with radio yeah, dramatisations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That said... 1981, along comes the BBC. He's Well, there's 1980 is the return of the King Rankin Bass, but he's not in that one. No. Actually, maybe we should talk a bit first about uh, why that is. Uh, well, because uh, the only circumstance in which he would appear would be in his return at the end of The Scouring of the Shire, and that is removed from the adaptation completely anyway. In terms of... <laughs> In terms of where this adaptation sits, probably the more that is lost, the better. <laughs> I don't know. It makes sense that in the Rankin Bass Return of the King, we don't get any of this Saruman stuff. You just end, like, the the Ralph Bakshi version ends with the defeat of Saruman, um, or at least the defeat of his orcs. I don't think we actually see what happens to Saruman himself, mm -hmm. which is like the theatrical Peter Jackson version. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, Saruman, he creates this sort of problem with the ending of Lord of the Rings um, for most adaptations. But not, as we were saying, the 1981 BBC radio adaptation. They do the scouring of the Shire and I think they do a pretty good job yeah. of it. Yeah, no, it's great. Shall great. we have a listen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's played by an actor here called uh, Peter Howell, who's apparently a close friend, or was a close friend of Ian McKellen, and a godfather to his daughter Tamara. Lovely. So Saruman, friends with... Gandalf, yeah. across the adaptations. Very nice. Worm! Worm! Coming, master. To the road again, Worm! These fine fellows and lordlings are turning us adrift again. Come along! Here's one last little remembrance for you, Mr. Baggins! Oh. Oh. So you try and stab my master, would you, Saruman? Will you try your last trick? No, Sam. No. Do not kill him, even now. For he has not hurt me, you see? His blade failed against my dwarf mail. And in any case, I do not wish him to be slain in this evil mood. He was great once, of a noble kind that we should not dare to raise our hands against. You are wise and cruel, halfling. You have robbed my revenge of sweetness. And now I must go hence in bitterness, in debt to your mercy. I hate it. And you. Wow, so yeah, a beautiful, beautiful voice and a really kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, there's just something, a quality to it that is just so rich, like just to listen to that voice that is just perfect for Saruman, the seduction of it, isn't it? It feels like all of them go, all of the cho choices we've heard so far in voicing Saruman, there's something inherent to the role where people go slightly less mask than with Gandalf. Yeah. There's less gruffness there, and I guess that fits the idea of Gandalf as having been this uh, wanderer out on the road, quite tough in a pinch, whereas Saruman is more refined home comforts and sending yeah. other people out to do his dirty work. Yeah. And it, it, so I guess we end up in the more silky villain kind of yes. place. But yeah, like we were he hearing with Peter Howell just there, there's a real depth to the idea of his villainousness. I, I love the line that Tolkien wrote about going forth in bitterness in debt to your mercy. That's a really That's twisted harsh, idea, man. really. Like, yeah, it's yeah. really... I, I think Frodo is meant to be a pure soul who hasn't intended that that's the most savage thing that he could do to Saruman is show him mercy, but actually it is because it shows to Saruman how far 
beyond and above him Frodo has become that yeah. he's not like a common or garden vengeful hobbit like all yeah. the other hobbits like kill him kill him yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Frodo's like no yeah so I mean also you've got the you've got just the total contrast in the vocal patterns of the hobbits and Peter Howell as well right there's a sort of um I don't know. There's also a inherent kind of uh, class dynamic going on as well, right? Because mm. Peter Howell is channeling this very, very refined RP voice, and then you have the voices of you know Bill Nye and Ian Home and so forth that sit in counterbalance to that. I think it's it's nice when you listen to the uh, radio adaptation, this particular one, um, because without an image, you are sort of left to sort of think about the way they've thought about class and the way they've thought about. Um, different things rather than just kind of visual prompts to yeah. distinguish the different levels that people are at. Speaking of which, uh, our next clip is from the Rob Inglis audiobook from 1990. Good old Rob Inglis, lovely to just have your dad telling you a story. <laughs> a reliable chap. Reliable, maybe even granddad figure, I'm not yeah. sure. So this clip is um, jumping back to the voice of Saruman, key chapter in the book for Saruman where he's being confronted by his enemies having lost the big battle at Helm's Deep and with Isengard trashed by Ents. So he's kind of lost all of his physical powers but his voice is still very much something that you want to watch out for. Very powerful, very seductive. So let's hear Rob English's stab at that. Well, it said now with gentle question, why must you disturb my rest? Will you give me no peace at all by night or day? Its tone was that of a kindly heart aggrieved by injuries undeserved. They looked up astonished, for they had heard no sound of his coming, and they saw a figure standing at the rail looking down upon them, an old man, swathed in a great cloak, the colour of which was not easy to tell, for it changed if they moved their eyes or if he stirred. His face was long, with a high forehead. He had deep, darkling eyes, hard to fathom, though the look that they now bore was grave and benevolent and a little weary. His hair and beard were white, but strands of black still showed about his lips and ears. Cool. So, I mean, yeah, he's doing exactly what we were talking about with um, Howl, in a way, um, just bringing that kind of sing-song, um, velvety touch to, to the the role and slightly camp quality <laughs> yeah it feels like with english maybe there's almost a nasal quality there slightly yeah. like he's he's sort of you know why have you not come before yes. it's afraid like there's a nose pinching quality um yeah. of uh yeah just a block pa i don't know whether he had a cold that day yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of that <laughs> yeah i mean english doesn't vary <laughs> English doesn't sort of vary his um, vocal range hugely to distinguish between a lot of the characters. Um, but So when you pick up on something that is slightly different, you're like, okay, so there is an intention here, right? Mm -hmm. It's a slightly um, more um, refined quality to the voice and it does, yeah, have a seductive um, tinge. It's a, it's a subtle change. Um, we're going to hear in a moment after we've talked about Peter Jackson's adaptation, we're going to hear a... Very much less yes. subtle version from Mr. Adesiochus, yes, uh, the other end of the spectrum. Um, but first, Peter Jackson. Yeah. I mean, how do you talk about uh, Christopher Lee? I mean, it's just it's an embodiment of the character, isn't it? It's like a full, fully committed performance that is drawing on all kinds of things 
um, that to do have to do as much with the Christopher Lee-ness of it all as they do to the Sarah Men of it. Um, but yeah, no. He's probably one of the actors in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings that out of anyone is bringing a level of expectation and a certain kind of portfolio. I think with someone like Saruman, who's meant to have been around for thousands of years, it does work to have someone who has been on the acting scene in the UK and Hollywood for such a long time. And the kinds of roles that he performed, like most famously Dracula, I guess, is that the most famous, Christopher Oh, absolutely, Lee? yeah. I mean, a whole roster of Dracula films for Hammer. And just a load of, load of horror movies right through from the 50s through to the end of his career. Just a horror icon, really. Mm. And I know he wanted to play Gandalf and had secured Tolkien's blessing to play Gandalf, should that ever come up. He was in correspondence with Tolkien when they were both alive. Um, Jackson, I think, felt that... For one thing, Christopher Lee was quite old by the time they came to shoot and would he really be up for trekking up mountains mm. uh, the way that was demanded by the Gandalf role. I wonder also, Christopher Lee, such a weight of evil in his portfolio yes. <laughs> as an actor. When when you first meet Saruman in Peter Jackson's films, I think if you haven't ever sort of engaged with Lord of the Rings before but you do know who Christopher Lee is you're there going like well this isn't gonna end well yes yes so uh yeah it's hard to imagine him in a sort of more benevolent Gandalf type role it just doesn't make any sense at all just mm. thinking about it and we look at the other people that Jackson considered for the role it's by and large people who have villain associations mm -hmm. so he looked at who did he look at tim curry tim curry villain jeremy irons pennywise malcolm mcdowell jeremy irons scar from the lion king like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm sure i can think of a better villain to typify jeremy irons career humbert 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 there we go we could have had just sarah man chasing up no let's not no, go down, let's down that, that route. Route. uh malcolm mcdowell obviously Clockwork Orange. So mm. he, Jackson was thinking about people with some um, villain heft. Villain clout, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think he could have done better than Christopher Lee for mm. both villain clout, gravitas, talking approval. Um, it's really a peak bit of casting. Shall we have a, a listen to a little bit of yeah. the late, great Christopher Lee's work as Saruman? Sauron has regained much of his former strength. He cannot yet take physical form, but his spirit has lost none of its potency. Concealed within his fortress, the Lord of Mordor sees all. His gaze pierces cloud, shadow, earth, and flesh. You know of what I speak, Gandalf. A great eye. Lidless, wreathed in flame. We have Saruman. He is gathering all evil to him. Very soon he will have summoned an army great enough to launch an assault upon Middle-earth. You know this? How? I have seen it. A Palantir is a dangerous tool, Saruman. Why? Why should we fear to use it? They are not all accounted for, the lost seeing stones. We do not know who else may be watching. 
The hour is later than you think. Sauron's forces are already moving. So a couple of snippets there from Christopher Lee as Saruman. I think one of the things I really like about his performance is this is the scene where Gandalf and we realise that this guy has gone wrong. Yeah. He's on the bad guy's side now. What I really like about the performance is that he doesn't do a sort of sudden unmasking and now I'm talking with my evil voice. He's remarkably consistent, which I feel like is probably the way that any kind of genuine supervillain type person in real life is. They're not going to suddenly completely transform. It's just that they reveal to you what their actual motivations and intents are. And again, he doesn't say... And now I worship the Dark Lord, I'm I'm evil. He just says, you know, like there's no one no one can contend with his will. We're we're yeah. on this side now. It's it's, it's very much in it's the same register fact. as at the beginning where he hasn't yet revealed to Gandalf that he's gone over to the dark side. Yeah. And just in terms of the staging of the sequence, it allows there to be um more of a kind of abrupt shock when they do start actually murking each other across the room because <laughs> if you have that rhythm of building where you're like oh but what is my dastardly plan you get more of a kind of a cushion against it suddenly turning into an action scene it's just a really well handled well staged sequence and something you're obviously not guessing listening to this podcast is christopher lee's eyes yeah. just so uh lovely it's just the way he conveys that incipient madness there are none that can and you're like oh sh- Shit, this guy's gone. He's yeah. absolutely gone. What's really funny is that actually in the whole pantheon of kind of Christopher Lee performances, it's actually quite low-key. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's yeah, not Peter... really off on one. He's just kind of like, I am the... Yeah. Yeah. Peter Jackson just like, you. okay, you can do the role, but we will be having low-key. <laughs> yeah. Low-key Lee, please. Yeah, yeah. And just the, the, the kind of uh, visual look of him and the... The sort of, uh, I don't know, everything about the, the sort of uh, set design, production design is just so deeply metal as well, right? Isn't it? like... <laughs> fully, fully metal. He's in a really like black marble with jaggedy edges kind of a throne room type setup. He's yeah. got his palantir. Um, the palantirs, I think, are really maybe we'll talk more about those when we talk about Denethor because yeah. I think they've got a little bit more resonance in that narrative but they are a fascinating thing that sort of Tolkien's identified this idea of technology that can listen to you Mm. so we're in an Alexa phone type realm it's technology that can show you things selectively so Mm. we're in a you know the bad algorithms kind of space and it's technology where if you like use it too much it's kind of a doom scrolling thing like yeah. it's, it's like i've seen sauron's power and this yeah, yeah. has affected my mind it's yeah, yeah yeah it's really prescient absolutely yeah um i don't know it's it's also just something um about the styling of the hair as well uh, <laughs> we sauron's been on the straighteners yeah he's got very straightened hair which 2001 2002 2003 when this adaptation was created is uh, very fashion forward uh-huh. which again i guess plays into that idea of saruman as the slightly more refined slightly less kind of like less real less wholesome less crusty 
than than Gandalf, whose hair is quite grey and yeah, Saruman's a bit more polished. Yeah, exactly. And it feels to me like this is one of the definitive Saru men. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if not the definitive Sarah man. Yes. Um, so let's have another, let's have a look at a, a second clip. I think it merits a second helping of Christopher Lee mm. as Sarah man. Uh, this is after he's been defeated and he's standing on top of Orthanc talking to the good guys. A man of Rohan. What is the house of Rohan but a thatched barn where brigands drink in the reek? and our brats roll on the floor with the dogs. The victory at Helm's Deep does not belong to you, Theoden Horsemaster. You are a lesser son of greater sires. So that's extended stuff, right? Like... Yes, yeah. In Peter Jackson's theatrical cuts, we never really properly get a conclusion to the Saruman arc, and... I think a lot of people would argue also that in, even in the extenders you don't really get that because yes you see him die but it's an oddly unsatisfying wrap up. He he dies um, pranging off Orthanc after Wormtongue stabs him um, but it does feel a bit out of place Yeah, and if, like they're just tidying up loose ends because of course they are. That's that's not how um, how it plays out in the book. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because presumably that was fully intended for um, the theatrical version um, and then wholesale cut out because, you know, for time and so forth. But it's a really unsatisfactory way to, to get rid of one of your main villains. Just if you think about it purely on a filmic term, uh, in filmic terms, it doesn't really add much or make very much sense for him to die at that point or in those circumstances. Yeah, it's... It makes sense that Wormtongue is the one that kills him, but then that's, again, that's from the book. That's canon, yeah. Um, that's canon. And Tolkien actually had thoughts on how you wrap up Saruman, but he aired in a letter where he was critiquing line by line a film treatment that he didn't like very much for how you would film Lord of the Rings. Um, so this is Tolkien on how he sees you wrapping up Saruman. Um if you'd like to read that bit, how to film the end of Saruman, according to J.R.R. the Prof. Z has cut out the end of the book, including Saruman's proper death. In that case, I can see no good reason for making him die. Saruman would never have committed suicide. To cling to life to its basest dregs is the way of the sort of person he had become. If Z wants Saruman tidied up, I cannot see why, where so many threads are left loose. Gandalf should say something to this effect as Saruman collapses under the excommunication. Since you will not come out and aid us, here in Orthanc you shall stay till you rot, Saruman. Let the Ents look to it. Love that he describes it as an excommunication. Yeah. The I moment could, yeah. where Gandalf breaks his staff and sort of casts him out of the council. Yeah. Um, that's very Catholic, I guess. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And the idea of a fall, like, yeah. I don't know, also... There's something, if you if you are going to get rid of the scouring of the Shire and you're not going to have a proper sort of final coda, uh, just having him being sort of trapped forever and all time in Orthanc is kind of quite nice. That would be a fine way to, to resolve things. Yeah, it? love a good enemy trapped forever, unable to do anything kind of ending. Like, that's a nice little sort of stasis thing. Yeah. 
um, fitting. Yeah, very nice. Uh, it's weird though, isn't it? Because Peter Jackson at this point in his career, um, famed for his horror films, very much bringing that expertise to The Lord of the Rings and really leaning into it across the trilogy. Um, it's strange that he would resist dramatising the scouring of the Shire because in a way, the reappearance at the end of Saruman is like a final little sort of... Uh, reappearance of the slasher villain at the end of you know whatever like a, a oh here he is for one last kill kind of thing you know it's strange <laughs> that's brilliant yeah i'd never really thought about it like that before but you're so right um from tolkien's point of view yes the scouring of the shire and saruman being in the hobbit hole at the end has this dramatic unity and the hobbits have grown to face the challenges and that's what the point of their growth has been and also history has all these weird bumps and twists along the way and you know there's no reason that we would necessarily end with this big crowning and then um have a little side adventure off at the end <laughs> but you're totally right the other thing that this is is leatherface or Ghostface or Michael Myers coming back at the end for one last good scare. You yeah. thought you'd gone home to your nice safe hobbit hole. Paha! Saruman is there and he tries to stab, he literally tries to stab Frodo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, no, it would have been lovely. And also just um, a few moments of kind of genuine terror after this sort of placid 30 minutes of <laughs> wrapping everything up. Yeah, um, we're sort of waterplaning to a really slick finish. Yeah. Um, and then... Yeah, like uh, Jason in the lake or something, out, out he pops um, yeah. with Wormtongue, his sidekick. It is a shame that we don't get the, the Jackson version of that. Mm. It would have been lovely to see. D correct me if I'm wrong, but in Fellowship of the Ring, does he not have Frodo foresee the scouring of the Shire when he stares into Galadriel's... It's Sam. Sort of Sam, it's Sam yeah. sees it and he says, you know, oh, they've dug up my old gaffer and made him go off. Yeah, like yeah. They've dug up Bagshot Row and yeah. there's my old gaffer with his bits and things on a cart. So, like, I've got to get back to the Shire. And it's a classic Jackson move to have that little hint of something in that they had to cut out. We've mm. talked about this in relation to Bombadil mm. and how Treebeard is given some of his lines and... Um, I'm not sure if we did talk about this in relation to Gollum, but Gollum gets one of the Barrowite kind of incantations to sing. Mm. So, including the vision in the mirror of Galadriel that, that Sam does have in the book, um, even though we're not going to then do the later throwback to it in The Scouring of the Shire, I, I think that's a, that's a classic kind of trying to include this because it should be in there, but also we can't really yeah, yeah. do the full pay off for this that's yeah yeah it's that almost uh almost fan service not quite fan service but trying to be as thorough as the time and constraints of a big 12-hour blockbuster will allow it's weird to sort of plant the seeds of all this this is what the stakes are this is why we're going to do this because ultimately the shire is in danger to have that as a big thematic undercurrent of so much of fellowship in particular mm. And then to not pay it off at the end and just have them come back and it's like, oh yeah, everything's been fine while you've been away. Yeah, it's just been all good. It's a bit weird. It's a bit weak, really, when you think about it. It does, I guess, undermine a bit the idea that the Shire was ever credibly in danger. I mean, yes, the Shire was in danger. If uh, Gondor had fallen, how long would... I mean, fucking Lorien and Rivendell, like <laughs> yeah. they're places of intense magic, etc. But I don't think it would have taken Sauron's powers that long to bosh through 
um, once they'd conquered Rowan and, and Gondor and everything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but it does leave it very much in the realm of the theoretical, whereas I guess as well there's that idea of, like, in the Peter Jackson version, Sauron ends up as a much more singular credible threat whereas the beauty of coming back from having fought all of these wars and found a, a kind of petty fascism um mentality has taken over with all of the the ruffians they're called in the book but basically saruman's men mm. gathering and sharing only they don't do any sharing but mm. gathering all of the hobbits crops and wealth and pipeweed and taking it away um and ruining the um, agricultural paradise that the hobbits live in. Yeah, and also, I mean, obviously, Tolkien will be absolutely turning in his grave for us to talk about any kind of historical social resonance. Um, but <laughs> it's just, just history. It's just history. It's just, just <laughs> nothing fake, to do with anything history. in the real world. Um, but um, you know, setting up Saruman as a kind of uh, a collaborator and uh, equivocator and someone who was ready to. Um, uh, you know, work with the enemy. Undermining the hobbits from within, that's the yeah. thing that... Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's not that Saruman has come in and um, without any help from the inside uh, quashed the hobbits' way of life. It's that he initially, through trade with with weed from the South Farthing, establishes this trade foot, foothold. Mm. Um, and that's quite kind of real politics like that that idea of it's through economics that um this kind of downfall can begin and then there's this shift in attitudes this idea that Lotho um one of the Sackville Bagginses sets himself up as the chief mm. and that later on he's only a puppet chief and he's this um he's this notional figure while Saruman has become the power behind the throne. Um, it's an interesting critique of the way that a petty coup might be enacted in a territory like the Shire, which is which is part democracy, part aristocracy. So you've got people like the Tooks and the Brandybucks who have the master of Buckland and the old Took, and that's an inherited position of power. But then you also have the mayor of Michael Delving and that's democratic and voted for. But that all gets sort of swept away um, by the Saruman regime in the Shire. Mm. And all that being said as well, um, the idea of coming back to a, um, a completely different world that you went in the first instance to protect does kind of resonate doesn't it i mean for those four hobbits that the idea of coming back and it would it, of course it would never have been the same coming back but it's that little bit more not the same by virtue of it while they've been off on this huge quest this kind of petty situation has evolved that yeah like um, what a nightmare it's an it's an amped up version of the nightmare that uh bilbo had when he came back and all of his stuff was being auctioned yeah, off yeah. it's like oh for god's sake i thought this was going to be like the nice homecoming and yeah. now i've got to deal with all this bureaucracy and in frodo's case it's it's that you know to the power of a hundred it's i've got to come back and deal with a mini fascist regime yeah it's like a complete veteran's nightmare right <laughs> <laughs> obviously the painting of the Shire is in such broad strokes at the beginning of Fellowship that you don't really necessarily have the groundwork laid for how petty and how 
ludicrous these people are. All you get really in in Shaxon is like this is a rural idyll that's a bit silly and they're all very cute but you don't get really the sense of the kind of grime and pettiness of it all because you don't have Tetheville Bagginses properly, you don't have any of the additional detail that you get in page after page at the beginning of Fellowship. Yeah, the bourgeois complacency of the hobbits that enables this takeover by a dictator uh, is very soft peddled for I think obvious reasons so Jackson is leaning more on the idea of like, here's a hobbit trying to pull a reluctant pig along on a string here's another guy yeah. who's got some uh, some muck in his ear or yeah. you know, all of that concerning hobbit stuff in the um, extended version you don't get stuff like the Sandyman, the miller who is incredibly sceptical of the idea of elves mm. or I think Sam says that his cousin has seen a walking tree and Sandyman, the miller's son, is just very sceptical about that. And it's through guys like that that this regime is enabled to take, is enabled to take over. Um, when they get back, when the hobbits get back to the Shire, it's the miller's son who is standing by this newly industrialised version of the mill going, mm. don't you like it, Sam? <laughs> like, he's really spiteful for yeah. a hobbit. Yeah. So moving on to the final, um, but by no means least uh, demonstrative uh, Saruman performance, Andy Serkis, um, in his recent audiobook version of uh, The Hold of the Lord of the Rings, what's his Saruman like? His Saruman is wonderful verging on a big old ham. Yeah. <laughs> He's taken the tendency for Saruman to be this quite mega villain, uh, huge performance guy, and yeah. he's really run with it. Uh, the clip that I've got, in fairness to Circus, is selected to show him at his most massive. Yeah. But... Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Gibbets and crows! He hissed, and they shuddered at the hideous change. Dotard! What is the house of ale but a thatched barn, where brigands drink in the reek and their brats roll on the floor among the dogs? Too long have they escaped the gibbet themselves, but the noose comes, slow in the drawing, tight and hard in the end. Hang, if you will. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> It is a lot. If it, as I say, in fairness to Circus, that is the moment when he's probably most going for it. It's the moment when he has failed to win Theoden over to on the doorstep of Orthanc. Um and he's really tried. He's just put a lot of effort and a lot of the power of his voice into this plea for Rohan to be chill mm -hmm. and forgive him for having sent a massive orc army yes. to destroy them. He then slowly like masters his temper, um, mm. gets himself together a bit more, talks to Gandalf. But it's a massive performance. It's absolutely enormous. Yeah, it's huge. It's huge. And feels, um, I don't know, like he's probably cowering. We talked about how Circus positioned himself in relation to the mic when he was recording. It feels <laughs> yeah. like maybe he's just cowering beneath it, shouting into it. Um, yeah, crazy. 
Um, I think it's quite good though. Yeah, I, it's great. I probably prefer it to a more neutral ceremony. It does mm. feel like the character it's worth um, going large with. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 big thing you can say about a circus is that he brings huge production values to everything. <laughs> um, yeah, for one man's voice to be so sort of uh, epic and cinematic is quite impressive, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. I really like the circus version. Yeah. Um, we, we've said it before and we'll say it again but it's a really good audio adaptation yeah from HarperCollins available now <laughs> so in conclusion I mean we've listened to lots of different versions of Saruman we've talked about different aspects of what he's bringing to the narrative what do you think is the defining in a nutshell what does Saruman bring to the Lord of the Rings as a character well, it's it's the it's the mirroring that we've talked about, isn't it? The, the sheer um, power of the idea um, of him using his innate skills and and power and influence um, in the exact opposite way to the way the story would have its characters uh, wield their individual mm. um, power, which ties in really closely to the big theme of Middle Earth across the Silmarillion as well in which Melkor, who becomes Morgoth, the first Dark Lord, he's also a power who becomes corrupted by power. He like, starts out as supposed to be a good spirit, um, but introduces this note of discord into the into the music that creates the world. And Sauron, again, is an example of someone who doesn't sort of start off as inherently evil, but quickly becomes that way through that corrupting lust for power. There's another bit I'd like us to read from the letters where Tolkien contrasts Gandalf and Saruman because I agree with you again, it's in that, that doubling between here's, here's how it was meant to go and here's how it went in the case of this guy that I think is, is the point of Saruman in the narrative. So Tolkien talking about Gandalf versus Saruman. There is no embodiment of the creator anywhere in this story or mythology. Gandalf is a created person, though possibly a spirit that existed before in the physical world. His function as a wizard is an angelos, or messenger, from the Valar, or rulers, to assist the rational creatures of Middle-earth to resist Sauron, a power too great for them unaided. But since in the view of this tale and mythology, power, when it dominates or seeks to dominate other wills and minds, except by the ascent of their reason, is evil, these wizards were incarnated in the life forms of Middle Earth and so suffered the pains of both mind and body. They were also, for the same reason, thus involved in the peril of the incarnate, the possibility of fall, of sin, if you will. The chief form this would take with them would be impatience, leading to the desire to force others to their own good ends, and so inevitably at last to mere desire to make their own wills effective by any means. To this evil, Saruman succumbed. Gandalf did not, but the situation became so much the worse by the fall of Saruman that the good were obliged to greater effort and sacrifice. Thus Gandalf faced and suffered death and came back or was sent back, as he says, with enhanced power. But though one may in this be reminded of the Gospels, it is not really the same thing at all. The incarnation of God is an infinitely greater thing than anything I would dare to write. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Talking on his uh, big themes yeah. there. 
uh, which is, yeah, I think that's, um, that's something that we get with Saramelli. Like for me, it's, it's both the big themes and the power. And then also the fact that he's such a great horror villain. You, you need someone to breed an army of orcs. Saruman's yeah. your boy. Yeah. And someone who is able to influence huge swathes of, 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 well, armies, but also have a great power over a, a sort of lesser being like Wormtongue, which we could mm. talk about in the Wormtongue episode, of course. Um, but that dynamic is very interesting as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, the and this might sound like a mad thing to say, I think one of the things I like most about Saruman is the sadness of what happens to him. We heard a bit of it in the mind's eye <laughs> and in the BBC version where, where we're wrapping up the Saruman stories but I don't think that either of them quite capture the idea of in the final moments of his death as he's sort of blowing away to nothing he actually looks to the west just for a moment and then um, kind of dissolves. I think it's probably worth letting the Lord of the Rings text itself have the final word and read that moment. I think it's one of the more beautiful passages, certainly one of the more poignant deaths, albeit a death of a villain, in the text. To the dismay of those that stood by, about the body of Saruman a grey mist gathered, and rising slowly to a great height, like smoke from a fire, as a pale shrouded figure, it loomed over the hill. For a moment it wavered, looking to the west, but out of the west came a cold wind, and it bent away, and with a sigh dissolved into nothing. Frodo looked down at the body with pity and horror, for as he looked, it seemed that long years of death were suddenly revealed in it, and it shrank, and the shriveled face became rags of skin upon a hideous skull. Lifting up the skirt of the dirty cloak that sprawled beside it, he covered it over and turned away. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. That is some writing. Stars. <laughs> Thanks, J.R.R. Yeah. J. R. R. yeah. Uh, so the, yeah, so there is a moment of um, possibility of redemption, even if it's very, very fleeting. But then it's rejected by the West. So yeah, I mean, he keeps it very mysterious, but it does sound, doesn't it? Like there's a moment where Saruman's essence or spirit or whatever kind of reaches out, and the West is like, absolutely not. You fucked yeah. it. Uh, yeah. See ya, and he goes into wherever the void, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of pathetic, isn't it? The whole thing. It's like uh, I don't know, for somebody to go from such a height of of influence and power to basically running a kind of little despotic, <laughs> grubby regime in a village. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's um, and Frodo references it when he says we shouldn't kill him. He was once of a, a an order of being that was mm. is sort of too noble for us to comprehend and to kill him in this evil mood like it's not on do you think there are parallels with Gollum? they're both examples of what happens uh if you know you lust after power after the ring but Gollum is the example of what happens if you yourself are already small and mean because he's already a, a kind of hobbit-like creature who would commit a murder that's pretty low and twisted whereas Saruman it's you know what happens if someone with their own power and nobility lost after a ring of power it's it's more of a downfall than than in Gollum's case I'm just thinking of maybe that expression of pity from from Frodo um, mm. that seems to be quite consistent yeah it's still that idea of we 
should let this person try to find healing even though we don't see necessarily any big hope of that. Yeah. What a bleak note to end on. Yeah. Let's play the game. So now it's time for my favourite part of the podcast. <laughs> you absolutely love this bit of the podcast. It's my favourite bit. It's where we play a game called The Page Off. It works like this. We uh, generate a random quote from Lord of the Rings. Then we have to have a guess on what page that quote comes from. And we're trying to score zero. So if you guess the page bang on, you know, uh, you score zero. If you are 10 pages off, you score 10 and so on. It's cumulative. So week by week, uh, we're trying to best one another in this endless, futile <laughs> battle of wills. What are the scores of the Bowman Pool? Just refresh my memory. I'm so glad you asked me that, Catherine, because at the moment you are sailing ahead of me with 206 and I'm on 321, but I believe I can claw back victory. It could all change today. Do you want to generate a quote? Let's generate a quote. Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Oh God. Okay, so we've talked about this before, haven't we? Because the recounting of the reunion with Gandalf the White comes in the form of a past tense anecdote rather than although that's Mary Depends Pippin, yeah. who's whose reunion. Mary and Pippin yeah. reunite with him. But I think this is Frodo getting reunited with Gandalf at the very end. Really? I think so. Because he he says I thought I was dead and Oh yes. Right. That would not apply to Pippin and Mary. I mean, they thought maybe they were going to die, but Frodo, it's like that he's passed out on Mount Doom and been rescued by an eagle. Yeah. So I think we're in, like, if you're in Peter Jackson's film, it's Frodo in his white knight shirt and everybody coming <laughs> in one by one. Gimli! Yeah, yeah. So we're wrapping up time. So last yeah. 100 pages. Final orders. Wow. Okay. But there's still a bit of scouring to go. Yeah. And a bit of... Grey Havens. There's all this like fields of Cormal and celebration, Aragorn wedding, yeah. all of that. Um, and then they like they go back and see Treebeard. There's quite a lot in the book. Uh, I would say maybe nine twenty. I'm gonna go flat nine hundred because I like flat numbers. You love a flat number. Love a flat number. <laughs> flat number. <laughs> I don't know what a flat number is. I like just like lots of zeros. Uh, yeah, 900. So. Okay. So 900 and what did I say? Nine 920. 20. Okay, Paul, put us out of our misery. What is happening on page 900? Okay. Because it's the land of shadow. Ah, oh, they're still in Mordor. So there's still a fair bit to go. We're, we're not even about doom at this point. Bollocks. Um, and then 920... Uh, at least, I mean, you're still closer. Um, we're in Mount Doom. Small error, it's not Frodo, it's Sam, um, who's thinking this, or, sorry, who's saying this. Um, and it's Sam on page 930 saying, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but mm. I thought I was dead myself. So, 930, that's not too bad. No, that's good. She scored a 10. Yeah, she scored a 10 and I've scored a 30. Mm. Um, still nowhere near clawing back the hundreds of points that sit between us. But what, wait, what have you... 341, is it? 351, if you've scored a... What page is it? That's you. Yeah. You guessed 900, so it's 30, so... Yeah. Okay, so it's 351. 
Wow. Okay, so lay the scores on me. So Catherine is on a on a neat two hundred and sixteen, and I'm on a slightly less neat three hundred and fifty one. At this point, you're probably relying on a big fuck up from me. I really am. I'm waiting for that fuck up. But then I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, it's all to play for. Thank you for listening to Not Another Fucking Elf, a Lord of the Rings character guide podcast by me, Catherine Bray. And me, Paul Ridd. We are a self-produced podcast, so please follow us at Not Another Elf on all good social media platforms. And it would be great if you could give us not one, not three, not seven, but five stars for multiple podcasts on your podcast app. Thanks to Tommaso Alietti for handling our digital bits and bobs, Charlie Shackleton for our cover art, and anyone else who helped us out along the way. Much appreciated. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and we strongly urge you to go out and buy the 1978 Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings, the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation, the 1980 Rankin Bass Return of the King, the 1981 BBC Radio Lord of the Rings, 2001 New Line Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, and the 1990 Rob English and 2020 Andy Serkis Lord of the Rings audiobooks, both from HarperCollins. And buy the book! There are so many nice editions of the book out there. We also recommend the Humphrey Carpenter biography as a starting point if you're curious about the life of the man himself, and the collected letters also collated by Humphrey Carpenter with Christopher Tolkien. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week when we're looking at one of the great redemption arcs, a character who does a great switcheroo and redeems themselves. Uh, That's your clue for next week. This has been Paul Ridd. And I'm Catherine Bray. And that's it for now. That's the end of the podcast. Grey ships pass into the west. Mm